All right, let's go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. I'm told that it's time to order new Bibles because we're starting to run low. So if you can't find one, just like completely just dive across your neighbor to get to the one that they have in front of them. All right, sound good? You don't sound that excited, but fine. All right. Now, listen, we believe that God's Word is like the thing that He gives us to teach us more about Himself. Like, He gives us His Word for all kinds of really awesome things, some things that we can go on and on and on and on about. But the highest on the list, the biggest, most important thing on the list of why He gave us the Scriptures is because He uses His Word to teach us about who He is. He reveals Himself to His people, and we want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of Him. And so we want to put Bibles in people's hands. We want to come up with creative ways of getting people to read them. We think that God will actually use that for your good and for His glory. And so if you don't have one, you can call yours. Take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. All right, so we have made it now to the sixth week of our effort to kind of slowly walk through the book of Titus together. And if you're new here, Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a protege, now ministry partner of his, named Titus. That's how it gets its name. He and Titus started uh, a new church, a brand new baby church. The language that we would use in church speak is they planted a new church uh, on the island of Crete uh, shortly after the end of the book of Acts. So early 60s AD. Um, We think Acts probably ended around 62 or 61, depending on how you count some things, and we think that Paul was ultimately martyred in Rome about 67-ish, and so somewhere in that little window, uh, Paul gets out of house arrest in Rome, goes off and does a bunch of other things, including planting a church in Crete with Titus and some other stuff, all right, but... um, whether it fall, wherever it falls inside that window, we know that once he started the church in Crete, that Paul eventually moves on from there to go do some other stuff in some other places. But he leaves Titus behind to kind of clean up the last few things on the to-do list, get some final things in order before they could say that the church was faithfully planted, faithfully started, uh, including one of the things on the to-do list, or at least the thing that we know about, is that Titus is to raise up leaders in the church. And Paul calls these leaders elders. All right? That's the, the word that he gives them. He calls them elders, but they're leaders in the church, teachers in the church. And somewhere in between Paul leaving and the writing of this letter, probably less than a year, we don't actually know, but somewhere in that little short window of Paul leaving and the, this letter happening, some problems have arisen on Crete. The Cretan church is kind of a mess, all right? Uh, some, some false leaders have risen up, and they've begun teaching some not-so-great stuff, all right? Um, bad leaders kind of rose to prominence specifically because good leaders weren't in place to stop that. Call it a power vacuum. Call it opportunism. Call it the blind leading the blind. doesn't really matter. Uh, we're told explicitly in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that Paul left Titus in Crete to prevent that problem. This is why I left you in Crete, to raise up elders. To appoint elders, he says. So, so what are these false teachers supposedly teaching falsely? Well, um, we're not told verbatim. We've got to kind of get there by putting the pieces together. But it seems, it seems that it's a smashing together of several, at least a couple, of several works-based understandings of the gospel, false gospels, we would call them. You've got some Jewish ceremonial law in there. You've got some pagan asceticism. You've probably got a few other things tossed in just to kind of round out the flavor. Um, but it seems, from the pieces that we have, it seems like every bit of it was an attempt to control, or I would argue an attempt to try to manipulate man's spiritual positioning before God. 
That's the goal. That's the aim. They taught that it was possible to gain access to a holy God by your own efforts of external righteousness. And then after gaining that access, it was your responsibility, your job, and and even uh, ability to maintain that access through your own holy effort, through your own efforts at external righteousness. And so they they pulled in the religious laws from the Jewish system, and they pulled in some of the, the, the things that were worshipped about the Roman gods, and they kind of mixed it all together in a way that made sense for the culture of the Cretan church and then they called everyone else to follow it or be damned. That was, the, that was what was going on in Crete. This is the level of righteousness that we require here and if you don't, then that means you are far from God. That, that was the message. That was the game. A couple of massive problems with that logic though. One is that it's a ridiculous idea on the face of things to think that a finite human being could ever come anywhere close to earning a right standing with an infinitely holy God. The math doesn't work on that, right? In order for that to make sense, you've got to simultaneously oversell your ability and grossly undersell what God has deserved. Just absolutely rob him of all glory. The Bible is about as clear as this on this as it is about anything else. No one does good, no not one, no one seeks for God. The Bible calls us enemies of God before salvation. It calls all of our works filthy rags. It says that even the best things that we do, if those things don't originate from and proceed from faith, they're sin. And so what, what typically happens whenever people try to run that route, whenever they try to earn and maintain their own brand of righteousness, what typically happens is that they either burn out the motor and give up. They walk away because, you know, the gospel didn't work for me. They either burn out and give up or they figure out a way to fake it publicly so that all the other people playing the game think that they've got it figured out. Keep them believing that they're successful. And usually those with that false public veneer of righteousness are the exact opposite of righteous when you get them behind closed doors. I don't know if you've ever seen that in your own life. It's definitely been true of the people I've known. It also appears to be what was going on in Crete. A public veneer of righteousness that did not match anything in private. Grand public gestures saying, he pulled in from all the different angles that they can think of, this religious system and that religious system, let's count them all in. If they get us closer to righteousness, we'll do it, let's have it. And so they layered and layered and layered external righteousness on top of each other. Let's add the Jewish stuff, let's add the Roman stuff. But, But that righteousness was never actually achieved. It was just talked about and put up on a pedestal and they created a, a status that no one could ever attain to. Which leads to the second problem with the logic of trying to teach that we can either earn or maintain our, our, our place with a holy God. It's that, it's that when that public-private divide eventually gets figured out, that disconnect eventually gets figured out, and make no mistake, it always eventually gets discovered. When that public-private disconnect gets found out, everybody watching it sees it for the sham that it is. And things blow up. Instead of running off the ones playing the game, you end up running off all the ones on the fringe trying to figure out if the game is even for them. Forget about the insiders. 
all the outsiders can't, who can't tell the difference between the true gospel and all the make-believe false gospels, they get the impression that the gospel itself is a sham. Hypocrisy hurts a lot of people. Hypocrisy built on a false promise, I think, usually hurts more. Ends up causing a bigger problem. The false teachers were creating a mess in Crete. Real people were really getting hurt. And so the letter of Titus exists. The reason why we have it, it exists because Paul is willing to wade in and fix that problem. He's not going to let it keep going. And so he reminds Titus of why he's there, why he left him there, to raise up elders. He lines out what Titus should be looking for in those, men's, in those men before they are elevated into that position. He cautions Titus against what Titus should prevent. And even Paul gives instructions about what to do with all the people making a mess of things, the ones causing the problems. He says, bridle them, silence them. And then last week, last week Paul began to lay out what I would think is a general structure of discipleship in the local church. Not some overly complicated, itemized flowchart, but a simple structure where everybody in the room, from the top all the way down to every corner, everybody in the room is owning the God-given responsibility right in front of them. That's the the structure he gives us. And through that simple design, everybody in the church is getting the attention and the discipleship care that they need and God wants them to have. So the trickle down of health starts at the top, yes, but it flows down from there into every possible nook and cranny within the church. So we've got a contrast on our hands, right? We've got false teachers doing everything they can, absolutely everything they can to try to kind of apply and force upon everybody else a man-made righteousness that they, no one can ever live up to. But then we've also got what appears to be a far more organic, natural structure that actually leads people to spiritual health. And so the question is obvious. How do we get from this one to that one? Right? How do we move from the man-made nonsense that doesn't actually help anybody to the organic stuff that actually saves people and sanctifies people and draws them closer to Jesus? How do we get there? The question, pretty obvious one. If you remember, we stopped two-thirds of the way through our text last week. And so it's time to pick it back up. You ready for verse 11? Maybe Paul's about to answer our our question. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all who? All people. All right, we've got a call time out there. So it's a new week. So it's a new week, and that means, as you might imagine, it's time for a new controversy over our letter. I told y'all there were going to be some of these things throughout this letter as we studied it. Things that you're going to go, what is he going to say when he gets to that part? All right. Welcome again to this week. All right. New week, new controversy. Uh, I, there are a couple of different things that sometimes get fought over here in verse 11. There's actually more than one in a single verse. The grammarians in the room all fight over the first part of the verse, and the theologians in the room all fight over the second part of the verse. It's a fun day. We get to look at both of them. Yeah. You, are you as excited as I am? It's a good day for me. All right, so 
First one up, the grammatical issue. Uh, normally, normally we don't make a big deal here around uh, translations and which translation you should read and which one's better than the others. We don't typically kind of make a big deal out of that stuff. Usually, I, in my opinion, usually the best translation of the Bible is the one that you're actually excited about reading. All right? That's usually the route that we run here. And so many, not all, by a long shot, not all, but many of the English translations out there today are actually really solid translations, and I would be excited that you were excited about it. Dead serious about that. Saying that, though, saying that, there are a few out there <laughs> that call themselves translations that probably have no business calling themselves translations. It was one dude with an agenda who decided to make a book and called it a Bible. I'd prefer you stay away from those. And if you want to have a conversation about that after we're done, I'd love to talk. But outside of that category, man, I will gladly, gladly admit that there are a lot of options out there that are really, really solid. We use the ESV exclusively here on the stage, the English Standard Version, but that's just to keep things consistent and easy. It's always better in church life when what I'm preaching from is what you're reading from and what we're quoting from and all those kinds of things. It just makes life easier for us, so that's what we do. But with that disclaimer in place, even though translation differences are usually minor issues that can be explained away in good faith, that does not mean for a second that translation differences don't matter. And sometimes they matter a whole lot. Such is the case with Titus 2.11. Sometimes translation differences matter a lot. For all you grammar nerds out there, and I'm not one because I failed sixth grade English, but for all you grammar nerds out there, the reason for the debate is found in the question, how many predicates exist in the Greek version of Titus 2.11? So all the non-grammar nerds went, what's a predicate? I had to look it up. Google it later. Shortest answer is that a predicate describes something about a subject. Okay? Now, there are two predicates in this sentence. The subject of the sentence is the grace of God. Predicate number one is has appeared. That's a predicate verb. All right? Again, Google it later. Predicate number two is bringing salvation. That's a predicate adjective, which I didn't know was a thing. But why does that matter? Well, because when you treat the second predicate as if it weren't one, when you treat it as something else, some other type of structure in the sentence, it changes the way you translate the verse, which is exactly what the King James and the NIV did. They ignored it as a predicate and treated it as something differently. The NIV renders verse 11 as this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation for all people. So what's the difference? Well, it means that the NIV treats God's grace and the offer of salvation as two separate things. In other words, it's God's grace that opens the door for them, him to then do something else. Offer grace to you, offer salvation to you. So how do other translations like the New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible and the ESV that we're using it this morning treat it? Well, when you account for the second predicate then a more literal translation, a more literal rendering might say, for the grace of God has been shown by bringing salvation. It reveals itself in bringing salvation. In other words, God's grace does not open a door for the offer of salvation. No, salvation is a direct action of God's grace. 
And so in this specific moment, while translation differences are often minor things that should just be explained away with nonchalance in this specific moment, translation matters immensely because it's the difference between God offering something and God accomplishing something. See the difference there? I don't know about you, but I'm of the opinion that whenever God sets out to accomplish something, he typically accomplishes it. He gets what he wants. But that's just the grammatical debate. What about the other one, right? The, the one that the theologians all want to bicker about. Well, it comes down to the phrase, for all people. Right? If, if the correct way of reading the first part of the verse is to say that God reveals his grace by bringing salvation to all people, then we should probably have a very clear understanding of what the word all means. Shouldn't we? There are a long list of people out there who see Titus 2.11 as a definitive argument for something called Christian universalism. Um, universalism is the belief that all people, regardless of belief system, that all people will be saved in whatever sense a particular universalist thinks of the afterlife. It's a moving target for a lot of universalists. Right? And so putting the Christian qualifier in front of universalism argues that it is through the Christian understanding of heaven and hell that the God of the Bible works to save people. Right? So that's, that's the, the route they want to run. Especially, even especially, people from other faith systems who don't believe in the God of the Bible. They believe that the God of the Bible is big and lovely and does what he wants to do and will save even those other people too. Right? That's the game. Right? And so it, it takes universalist belief and applies them to the framework or tries to apply them to the framework of, the, of Christian doctrine. That's the game. And I say tries though because there are massive swaths of Bible that the Christian universalist has to ignore in order to play that game. Just massive chunks of it. Just outright ignore or outright dismiss entirely. First on the list, the Bible's pretty clear that not everyone will be saved. Period. <laughs> like over and over again it tells us that. This tends to poke a giant hole in universalism. Christian flavored or otherwise. The Bible promises eternal punishment for sin for all those who have not repented and placed their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. In the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. Full stop. That is the message of the Bible. So what in the world is Paul talking about then when he says that God's grace brings salvation for all? And this is another reason. This is another reason why long series through books of the Bible are so incredibly valuable for us. So incredibly valuable for us. We get the privilege of sitting on the shoulders of the context that we've covered so far. So last week, seven days ago, if you remember, right, we stopped two-thirds of the way through our text. But we didn't change subjects. We didn't change subjects. Paul just spent a very long-winded paragraph unfolding a plan for all these different types of people in the local church. Leaders, mature men and women, younger men and women, even bond servants have a role to play, right? And so that was a verse ago. That was verse 10. And so still inside of that structure, Paul says that God's glory is revealed. It is made known by saving people. What people? All kinds of people. All the different types of people. Uh, he saves some who have the capacity for leadership. And he saves some others who take more behind the scenes role. And joyfully save some that the culture around us would say, oh, God can't possibly be interested in those guys. Immediately dismissed, God's glory is revealed through his bringing salvation to people of every stripe and background, from every tribe, race, and tongue, to say it a different way, and even saving people from every level of freedom within a culture. 
The gospel crosses barriers. I don't know if you've seen this before, but the gospel crosses barriers that the rest of the world cannot figure out how to cross. And then, it doesn't rest on its laurels there, no. No, it unites them together inside a local church that doesn't merely find ways to coexist. Oh no, it calls for every single member of that diverse group of people to empty themselves in the serving of everyone else. The rest of the world tries its best to manufacture unity by continually telling everybody that they're supposed to play nice while simultaneously believing that the identity you walked in the door with is the most important thing about who you are. Those are conflicting aims, though. Those don't work in the same room. The gospel, however, gives you a new identity as a son and daughter of God that supersedes the one you walked in the door with and calls us all to die to ourselves for the sake of serving everybody else. Those two postures could not be more different. They could not be more different. But how do we get there, though, right? That's the question. How do we get from disparate backgrounds and agendas to a healthy local church where everyone is looking to sacrificially serve to each other? How do we get there? I mean, it's one thing to, to talk about. It's one thing to hold it up as a value that we pursue. It's a different thing entirely to have a realistic answer for achieving that value. So how do we get there? Well, the revealing of God's grace and salvation is what gets us there. If you didn't notice, verse 11 ended in a comma. So let's read it again and keep going this time. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. All right, so what trains us in all of these things? Well, the grace of God as revealed in salvation is what trains us, according to Paul. By seeing and savoring God, God's grace and salvation, we are changed, we are sanctified, and we are trained into a righteousness that more closely matches the righteousness that was declared over us when we first placed our faith in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And remember everything we talked about in our Fruit of the Spirit series a few months ago? Yeah, all that stuff still applies. I meant it then, meant it now. The change in us that occurs, that, that training in righteousness, it's not something that we conjure up on our own. It's not something that we white-knuckle our way into. It is the Spirit who works within us, and He does that work primarily through the application of the gospel into every corner of who we are. And as the gospel continues to take deeper and deeper root, it moves beyond just trying to keep the plates spinning on with external actions. No, it sinks deeper down than that to affect the way we see and think and view and understand the world around us and all of other things. It causes us to love what we used to despise and despise what we used to love. But it's not like we're sitting around on the sidelines waiting patiently for the day that well, that work will be finally complete. No, we've been called to participate in the Spirit's work as He changes us. And so we grow in these things by practicing these things, right? We actively renounce ungodliness and worldly passions even as we fight against those leanings in our very own heart. We continue to bring ourselves under control by disciplining ourselves towards upright and godly lives. But, but how is that How's that any different from the works-based non-gospels that we were discrediting earlier in what we were talking about? How's that different from what the, the bad leaders and teachers in Crete were teaching? Well, it's different in about 150 billion different ways, but the biggest one will suffice for the morning. 
works-based gospels teach you to do everything in your power to earn your position with God. Their greatest hope for you, the absolute best thing that they could ever offer to you is to keep championing you on, keep pushing you on and encouraging you to fight and scratch your way into his favor by stringing together the right combination of external actions. That's their best effort. But they ultimately get you nowhere because the heart is never changed to love God as God rightly deserves. But what, ta- what Paul's talking about is very di- different. What Paul's talking about is a joy-filled reaction to the position and the favor and the lavish love that God has already poured out upon you based on the perfect merits of the sacrificial death of his son. Is a cause and effect explosion of change in your heart that cannot help but bleed out into every corner and every external action. Why? Because you are left in awe at the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the God who chose to save you when you knew who you were. What's the difference between true godliness and man-made attempts to recreate it? Well, just about everything. Just about everything. Right knowledge of the gospel will always produce a right living of the gospel. We said it in a negative sense over a couple of times now over the course of this series, right living necessarily must prove themselves with through their right knowledge must necessarily prove itself with right living and if it doesn't it's a red flag, right? We've talked about that over and over again. But the reality is that's just as true in the reverse. It's just as true in the positive sense. When you truly get the gospel I mean, when the gravity of what God has done for you in spite of you finally works its way all the way home, deep into your heart, you cannot help but be changed by it. And that's why better pastors than me will constantly be pointing you back to the beauty of God and the beauty of his gospel work when it's time to make changes on the external stuff. That's the route we have to run. Without that change in affections coming first, the external stuff can never last Can can I just be honest with you? I don't have the ability to stand up in front of everybody and cast vision for us to move the needle on this and to move the needle on that, but God does. And if he changes your heart, I don't have to work that hard. Without that change in affections coming first, the external can never last. That's why the structure of most of Paul's church epistles begin with the indicative and always move to the imperative. This is what Jesus has done. This is why God has done it. Now live this way. It's also the exact same reasoning that Paul leans into next. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of his glory, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So I considered... I considered splitting these three verses out and giving them a full week to cover on their own. They are definitely dense enough to do so. But with the acknowledgement, because I'm running out of time here, I already made this series four weeks longer than I anticipated, with the acknowledgement that we could have easily spent way more time on verses 13, 13 and 14, let me just hit the highlights for you, okay? Paul points to two absolutely massive reasons that we can trust that everything that God is calling us to do is worth doing. Two absolutely massive reasons. You want, you want to move the needle on our affections? Here they are. First, first he points to the imminent return of Jesus to collect his bride, waiting for our blessed hope. That's what he says. 
We live in a culture that tends to think of waiting and hope very differently than the way that the Bible uses those vocabulary words. What Paul's talking about here is a joy-filled expectation. A joy-filled expectation. Hope is typically, in my experience, caricatured in our culture when it comes to religious conversations. It's usually portrayed as kind of forcing a smile on our face as we ignore the evidence in front of us. That's typically what hope is characterized as. But the Bible doesn't call call hope anything of the sort. It doesn't use it that way at all. In the Bible, hope is a confidence in what we do not yet see because of the overwhelming trustworthiness of the one who who has made the promises to us. The overwhelming trustworthiness of the one who made the promises to us. It's easy for us to trust that Jesus will do exactly what he said he would do. Why? Well, because of the second reason that Paul spells out in verse 14. The one who will one day come in glory is the same one who has already given himself for us to redeem us. The promise to return soon and bring us home is not disconnected from Jesus' other work. It is the final step of a process that he is already working on to create a people for himself. It's step three here. We've already been justified. He's actively sanctifying us. And the promise that we await, the last step, future glorification. He's already made good and is making good on items one and two. So considering who he is, item number three kind of seems like the easiest one for him to pull off. It's not complicated for him. He's just coming back. He's already done the hard work. So, so we are joyfully, confidently waiting for our blessed hope. But what do we do in the meantime? Well, verse 15. Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul gives explicit instruction to Titus here. What was introduced in verse 1 is then specified in verses 2 through 10. It's grounded in the inexhaustible fuel of God's grace in verses 11 through 14. And then it's just kind of neatly summarized for us in verse 15. Titus, teach these things, he says. Exhort and rebuke. If you don't don't know what those words mean, it means plead and correct. And do so with all authority, Titus. So Paul says, teach these things, exhort and rebuke, and do so with all authority. Paul tells Titus that he is not a conversation leader, and he's not cultivating a dialogue between diverse opinions. No, he is an authoritative proclaimer of God's revealed word. And while the command is given explicitly to Titus, I think the command naturally extends to every faithful elder of every faithful church. The the job of a pastor or elder or whatever else you might want to call them, his job is to authoritatively declare these things. Pleading and correcting their, their tools in his belt, but that's his job. God's proclaimed word revealed with all authority. And so let, let me try to serve you this morning with something, something more practical than what I normally give you. There, there will likely be a day, whether it's soon or far off, there will likely be a day where you are actively looking for a new church to press into. And maybe you're thinking, oh, that'll never happen. The transience of our culture bears testimony otherwise. All right? Whether it's a major life change, whether it's uh, uh, w- w- whether you moved here or moved there, maybe uh, relationship status changed, or you go off to school, or or maybe I did something really really dumb and you decided this isn't the place for you. All right, whatever the case is, one of these days you will be looking for a new church to press into, and so when that day comes, what should you look for? 
If you trust me at all, I would point you to finding the fulfillment of this verse above every other possible thing. I genuinely mean that. When you're having the conversation of what church should we press into, you figure out how this verse is being fulfilled in that potential church, and you've got your answer for every other possible thing. Whether you're in that stage right now or you need to file away for the future. The next time you're looking for church, aim for this and all the other stuff will work itself out. Aim for the church that loves God's word and has men in the pulpit that have committed themselves to its truth and owned the responsibility to point everyone back to it as they exhort and rebuke with all authority. You find that, you find that piece. Everything else can either be fixed or ignored. You fail to find that. Nothing else that's working will last for very long. Even here, especially here. If you don't see that in us here, then don't hang around for some lesser reason. I'd love to be helpful to you as you try to get connected to a church where you do see that happening. If it's not here, it's definitely somewhere else. And so the best way I could serve you and love you well is to come alongside you and help you get there. But how do we respond this morning? What do we do now? How, what, what do we do with God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus already, our response is the same as it is every single week, right? We, every time we encounter God's word, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And, and this week, I, I think he's showing us that he is actively working in us and through us to accomplish his purposes. It's not just some past work we celebrate and it's not just some future work that we place our hope in. No, he's working right now to change us into something that looks more and more like himself, right? I don't know about you, but I fight against that sometimes. Anybody else? Maybe you're better than me on that stuff. <laughs> when I find myself in those moments, it's usually, it's just been my experience, it's usually because I've lost sight of who he is and what he is doing. I have a nasty habit of creating the weeds that I get lost in. So I think our response this week probably needs to take the shape of reminding ourselves over and over again of his goodness and his great love for us and maybe even looking for creative ways to create rhythms of that reminder. Help stave off the weed growth for a little bit. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside so that you can have some space to move from that, move that response from your head to an, an action step of some sort. Put some feet to it before you rush off into the next thing on the calendar today. But what if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How do, you, how do you respond this morning? Well, you respond by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all separated from God relationally because of our sin and that we are owed the just and righteous punishment for that rebellion against him, hell. The Bible also teaches, it also teaches that there is a blessed God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It teaches that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. How? through a sinless and sacrificial death on a Roman cross in your place. That's how. The debt was owed for our sin, and Jesus came and claimed that debt. He took it upon his own shoulders, and he paid it in full. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the one who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus in saving faith. And I'd love to be helpful to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you get to us.
Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Titus and a letter that calls us to holy living. But never holy living based on anything we try to produce in and of ourselves. Nothing nothing without faith that ever originates from us is good. But God, you are. You are infinitely good. And thank you for giving us your spirit to dwell in us and change us from the inside out. But God, we know that we don't sit on the sidelines. Would you help us account for this new heart and new affections by practicing the things you've called us to? Trusting that you will cause us to love what we used to despise and despise what we used to love. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today for their good and your glory? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.